many women of this generation um, feel you know, 10, 15 years younger than their chronological age. And so their subjective age is quite different from the numbers on their, you know, birth certificate or their driver's license. And, um, you know, they're healthier, they're living longer, um, they're uh, politically active, mm -hmm. they're energetic, but they're mostly erased from the screens of America. Let's overthrow this media myth that older women and younger women are at odds with each other and can't get along. It's not true. I don't see it between me and my students, and we need each other more than ever. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Powering Up, a cross-generational conversation about leadership and power through a female lens. I'm Ann Doyle, author of Powering Up, How America's Women Achievers Become Leaders. And I'm Monica Doyle. Uh, I am the millennial voice of this podcast. Um, our guest today is Susan Douglas, an American feminist author and cultural critic who writes about gender issues, media criticism, and American politics. She has written five fascinating books and is a professor of communication studies at the University of Michigan. Welcome, Professor Douglas. Thanks for having me. I am so excited to have Susan Douglas with us today because she is not only the author of one of my favorite books, Enlightened Sexism, The Seductive Message That Feminism's Work is Done, but she also has a fascinating new book that is almost ready for prime time, which is entitled In Our Prime, How Older Women Are Reinventing the Road Ahead. You often write about the unfinished business of the women's movement. So tell us about this new book. So the new book is uh, really looking at what I see as a turnstile moment in our culture right now. Um, there are more women over 50 than there have ever been uh, in our country. And these are baby boom women. And so many of them came of age during the women's movement and uh, overturned uh, a lot of corseted stays that were trying to keep <laughs> them uh, in their place. And now, as they're turning 50, 60, and beyond, they are confronting gendered ageism. And on the one hand, there are uh, there's a lot of invisibility of older women in the media. There's a lot of negative stereotyping. There are uh, negative attacks on older female politicians. We saw what happened to Hillary Clinton um, mm -hmm. and Maxine Waters and Nancy Pelosi. And on the other hand, I think we're starting to see the beginning of what I'm calling visibility revolts. Love uh, where, it. You know, we're seeing Grace and Frankie being, uh, you know, uh, renewed for its sixth season on Netflix with a huge fan base, including of younger women. Uh, we're seeing older women uh, from uh, Judy Dench and Helen Mirren, uh, Meryl Streep, Diane Keaton, opening movies. And, um, mm -hmm. and I think there's really a push for more visibility among celebrities as well. And so because we live in such a celebrity-saturated culture, there's a powerful dynamic between um, what celebrities do, particularly celebrities, women of a certain age, and our cohort of older women who are also pushing for more respect, more visibility, uh, and to be uh, have our voices uh, be heard in the world and have us be seen and uh, seen as politically and culturally important. Well, I think the title of your book is fascinating. It's almost a play on the fact that 
older women are often looked at as past their prime. Absolutely. Um, you know, but I think... And you're saying, hey, this group of women is in a prime that we've never seen before, perhaps, for this cohort group. Well, you know, it's very true. 30% of women uh, between the ages of 65 and 70 are still working outside the home. Now, some of them are doing so because they love their jobs and they don't want to quit, and others are doing so because they have to. Mm -hmm. 18% of women between 70 and 75 are working outside the home. Um, Many women of this generation um, feel you know, 10, 15 years younger than their chronological age. And so their subjective age is quite different from the numbers on their, you know, birth certificate or their driver's license. And, um, you know, they're healthier, they're living longer, um, they're uh, politically active, Mm -hmm. they're energetic, but they're mostly erased from the screens of America. Mm Mm-hmm. When you hear that, Monica, what are you thinking as a... uh... I think about my mom a lot because my mom is also a... She also works at the University of Michigan. She works in the EECS department, and she was part of a generation... Like, I think there was three women in her graduating class. Um, So she was kind of accidentally, you know, overcoming sexism a long time ago. And also, you know, she's one of those women who is in her uh, early 60s, and she's still doing so much stuff all the time. She's on, like, the board of the city and stuff like that, and she... I can't get her to stop sometimes. <laughs> well, you know, there, uh, you're you're so right. There is such a gap. If you just look around, just look around uh, at airports, bars and restaurants, uh, universities, um, you know, hotels, uh, older women, yoga studios, right? Yeah. Older women are everywhere <laughs> mm-hmm. in everyday life, and they are doing all kinds of things that our mothers, uh, my mother's generation, were not allowed to do. Um, and so it's it's quite different. When my mother was my age, um, the um, wisdom in gerontology circles was something called disengagement theory. <laughs> and what it meant, and people 50 and over were thought of as elderly back then, which makes me You're gasp. talking about me here. Right. I don't even and, think of my mom um, as elderly. No. And what you were supposed to do, it was better for older people and it was better for society if older people just withdrew. That was the theory back then. Move aside so the younger people can have your jobs and take over and make decisions for you? Exactly. And actually, I'm writing about um, her in part of the book. The woman who really helped to change this was Maggie Kuhn, who was the founder of the Grey Panthers. And uh, nobody knows about her anymore. She's kind of lost to history, but she was forced to retire when she was 65. And it pissed her off, you know, because Mm -hmm. she... She was energetic and full of life. She was demonstrating against the Vietnam War. And um, she saw around her both demonstrations and also media activism on the part of African-Americans, gays and lesbians, women. And there was nothing uh, about older people. And so she Mm -hmm. founded the Grey Panthers. And, uh, you know, by the mm, sort of late 1970s, early 1980s, there were 100,000 members of the Great Panthers. I remember the Great Panthers. I haven't heard of them in a long time, but now that you mention it, I remember them. 
she was badass you know she um <laughs> she went on johnny carson and upbraided him for doing ageist jokes i mean she took on the most powerful man in entertainment uh and and in the country in a way uh and yelled at him about doing aunt blabby and she got mandatory retirement ages overturned mm. um she was a big advocate which is why i wanted to mention her especially here she was a big advocate for cross-generational and intergenerational uh, cooperation and, and interaction. She lived in a big house in Philadelphia with multiple generations of people, and she thought it was really, really important for older people and younger people to engage with each other and talk to each other and learn from each other. Yeah, well, I mean, that's easily one of the most valuable things I've learned from this podcast. You know, Anne and I don't always agree on everything, but I think the fact that we're talking about it is probably the most important aspect of it. Absolutely. You know, and there's no reason we should agree about everything. You know, you as a young feminist, you growing up in very different times mm-hmm. than when we grew up. And um, and feminism evolves and issues for women of different different generations, you know, evolve. But that doesn't mean we don't have a lot in common, especially now. Mm-hmm. Well, um, and on that note, um, there was actually something I wanted to ask. I was reading a little bit of your book before you came in here, and there was a really great word on the inside flap or little blurb. It said, sharp and irreverent, look at our pop culture icons revealing the unfinished business of the women's movement. So I really just wanted to ask an overarching question of what is the biggest part of the unfinished business in the women's movement? You know, I think it's hard to prioritize. Uh Um, Look, we did accomplish a lot in the 70s and beyond. Mm -hmm. Um, However, in no particular order, we still don't have paid maternity leave. We're like one of nine countries on the planet that Mm -hmm. doesn't have paid maternity leave. Uh, We don't have paid paternity leave, which many, many other countries do. Um, There's still pay inequity across the board, and it's worse in some states than others. Um, We know that sexual harassment is rampant still, uh, and keeping uh, many women um, in their place, uh, especially uh, those who are not celebrities and don't have advocates. Um, There's enormous amount of discrimination still against um, trans women, lesbian women, African-American women, women of color uh, in terms of pay, housing, jobs. Um, It goes on and on and on. So, and, and, you know, what I'm writing about in this book is I embrace all of those issues that young women are still fighting for, that the assault on women's reproductive rights is at its worst pitch ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I embrace all of these issues, and I think they're really important. But what I'm advocating is that we don't really have yet a lifespan feminism where older women are part of this feminist project and that there's a feminism that really um, goes through the entire arc of a woman's life, um, you know, including when she's older and retired. There are so many discriminatory things that affect older women. Mm -hmm. Older women are uh, much more likely to be poor than older men. 
They're much more likely to be single than older men. Uh, their social security checks are much smaller uh, than men's. Um, yeah. And so, you Because know, they were paid less all along. They were, they were paid less or some of them took time out to be unpaid caregivers. Yep. Some of them were, didn't get any social security because they were paid under the table. Um, so there's a lot of unfinished business about older women, too, mm -hmm. and especially older women who um, are not privileged. Mm -hmm. I so, love that term, lifespan feminism. I'm glad you like it. I love it. Yeah, because I think it's that whole idea about um, bridging these different stages that women go through. I mean, bridging the generations. Is that the idea? Absolutely. You know, um, I was really quite irritated when, uh, you may recall, Gloria Steinem went on Bill Maher. And Gloria Steinem, who has done so much for women all over the country um, for decades, she had a gaffe, you know. Uh, Bill Maher, she opened up by saying she thought millennial women were way more feminist than her generation had been. And she really gave a shout out to millennial women. But then Bill Maher said, well, why are all these, uh, why are so many millennial women um, supporting Bernie? And she flubbed it, and she said, well, uh, you know, that's where the boys are. And, yeah, you know, so she had to apologize. It was it was a stupid gaffe. Um, where was I, that coming from? I mean, you know, I, she was trying to be funny. You know, she's trying to be glib. She, you mm -hmm. know, misstepped. Um, you know, and this is a surprise for somebody who's words have always been so measured and careful uh, and she has she herself has really in throughout her entire career um, sought to build bridges between white women women of color older and younger women native, well Native American Native women. American She's, women yeah. absolutely yep. um, and so oh my god you know then this gets translated into generational warfare you know between second waivers and millennials and um you know the media love this they love cat fights yes. among women and um there were also been some media stoked cat fights in the wake of me too mm -hmm. that me too mm -hmm. is a generational divide that younger women and older women regard some of the issues around me too quite differently well there was just a poll that fox did and that's a myth Older women and younger women completely agree, um, you know, about what constitutes sexual assault and sexual mm -hmm. harassment. I mean, um, it, there's yeah. not a difference between the ages. You know, assault is assault. It doesn't matter how old you are, what color your skin is. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, one of the things that um, I'm pushing for through this concept of lifespan feminism is that we really need to start building the kind of thing you've already done, bridge groups, you know, we need bridge groups um, where more older and younger women get together. Uh, we talk about the similarities and the differences in what we experience in mm -hmm. terms of sexism and misogyny. Um, but, you know, what I hope our generation can do hand in hand with younger women is really try to tackle gendered ageism because I don't want your generation confronting what older women are confronting now. Um, why should you, you know? And so um, I think that's really important that we drive a stake in its heart now. <laughs> <laughs> well, and in terms of like uh, sort of the media thing that we were talking about, uh, Bill Maher, um, I feel like in, I, I don't care for Bill Maher personally. I feel like he's, you know, the liberal pro propaganda. And um, 
I but I do feel like the example that you brought up is a particularly good example of how, you know, in a situation when you're on like Bill Maher's TV show, you want to be like one of the guys, air quotes. And do you think that that might be kind of a part of what you you were talking about of um, the unfinished business of the women's movement, you know, they're like, oh, well, we're liberals. We care about everything that happens to women. And then you get people provoking like, oh, well, what are you complaining about? Yeah, I mean, I I think that, you know, what what I was really writing about in um, Enlightened Sexism is, um, you know, and it's a sneaky, subtle form of sexism that suggests that, Full equality has been achieved. Mm-hmm. All of the goals of the women's movement have uh, have been achieved. And so women are now equal. And therefore, it's totally fine to resurrect uh, sexist, misogynistic yes. uh, representations of women, jokes, etc. And women should get a sense of humor. And, um, <laughs> you know, and so there's this pull um, to be one of the guys. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, enlightened sexism you know, it makes patriarchy pleasurable for women. And I'm sorry, no thank you. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, and you've done an outstanding job, like, just simply, uh, like, describing the issue, which is, you know, people have decided, oh, well, the issues are over, so we can joke about them now, and then they become an issue again. Um, so what do you think is, like, a current effective way to address that kind of thing? Well, um, I am... Uh, very pleased to see um, the Me Too movement. And I think one of the um, side effects of Donald Trump um, getting elected president, despite all of his sexist and misogynistic comments and purported actions, is he's um, activated, he's just lit a fire under feminism. And Me Too added more Mm -hmm. to that. And um, and so I do think that more women are speaking out and they are feeling emboldened to speak out about sexual assault, sexual misbehavior, and they need to do so even though, despite Me Too, it can remain lonely. It can remain uh, the fact that people don't believe you, mm-hmm. that you're making it up, that you're hypersensitive. But we have to ally with each other uh, along uh, those lines. I think women have to get much more politically active. And um, I have to confess, and I'm embarrassed to confess this, but um, this was the first time I canvassed for for uh-huh. po- for poli- you know for people running for office. You mean and in the last election? In 2018. Uh-huh. In 2018. I mean, you know, I've... I you give, weren't canvassing in 2016? No, I gave money. I gave money, money, money. But, but you're I talking was, going door to door now, I'm right? talking go- going door to door. Um, a part of it was, you know, even though I'm very outspoken feminist, there was something about it. I was kind of shy about it and didn't know what it was be like. Be like. And um, and I, I thought Hillary was going to win, you know. I mean, I think a lot of people mm-hmm. did. Not 2018. And so mm-hmm. I found it exhilarating to do it. And I'm so mad at myself <laughs> that I haven't been doing it for years. And the thing is, when I was um, uh, when I was canvassing for a candidate here in Michigan who was trying to flip a Republican district, which she did, there were people there of all ages, women of all ages, and a lot of people who had never canvassed before mm. in their lives, mm. just like me, and didn't 
didn't know how to do it. And um, so I think we have to canvas more for uh, progressive women candidates, and we have to let them hear from us about what matters to us, what laws have to be preserved, what laws have to be enacted. Um, raise our voices. Raise our voices. I mean, why on God's earth do we not have paid maternity leave? It is a national scandal yeah. that we do not have paid maternity leave. Right. You know, we don't have... We're we, like a third world country regarding yeah, this issue compared absolutely. to the rest of the world. There are like, you know, a couple of countries in two volcanic islands that don't have <laughs> yeah. it, you know, and us. Um, we do not have paid, subsidized, licensed, affordable daycare. Mm -hmm. um, women are still putting together all kinds of patchwork, um, you know, arrangements to have their children taken care of so they can work. Yeah. Uh, we need to push for that. There was a bipartisan bill that passed Congress in 1970 to do just that, and Richard Nixon vetoed it, and they didn't have the votes to, um, to overturn the veto. Um, and Pat Buchanan was the one who wrote the veto language. Well, listen, I am a woman who uh, knows exactly where I was standing on the day that the Equal Rights Amendment to the U.S. Constitution failed. Yeah. And I fought very, very hard for that. I, um, yeah, and so that breaks my heart that American women are still not in the U.S. Constitution. Well, and if I can actually take a, a second real quick, just now you mentioned how you went canvassing. Um, and how before you had donated money. Anne has mentioned before, like, donate money to these causes. It helps a lot. Millennials don't have any money, so you can canvas, you there know. You so go. that was an interesting thing that I guess nobody had really mentioned to me before. Yeah, canvassing really matters. Um, I, I was um, impressed with how many people, first of all, if, you're, if your candidate knows what she's doing, um, they're not going to send you, you know, to a, a far right person. No. You know, they they might send you to somebody who's wavering, but um, and you might need to persuade people. You also want to make sure they're going to get get out and vote. Yeah. Um, but so many people, and I was canvassing with another woman who was maybe about ten years younger than I, and. So many people were like, "Thank you for doing this. Thank you for doing this." Yeah. It was. It was. I've done it, it a lot, great. and I love it. Yeah. But I wanna. Uh, I really wanna understand a little bit about you. Okay. Before <laughs> we run out of time, there's so much to talk mm -hmm. about with you. But back us up just a little bit because you are clearly very passionate about this. Uh, how did you get that way? Uh, can you share with us a little bit that young woman or that girl or whatever it was that were powerful forces in your life, people or the environment that you grew up in, where'd you get that fire in your belly? Well, you know, I, th I think, you know, even in high school, I was always something of a troublemaker, but... Um, <laughs> and but, proud of it. And proud of it. Um, fairness always mattered to me a lot, but I went, to, I went to a woman's college in upstate New York, and my freshman year, the president announced that uh, it was going co-ed, that fall, and he made the announcement in January when you know all college applications were already in, so no preparation was done for this. They were basically you know combing I don't know the jails or whatever to get you know guys to come to the school, oh and I'm being hyperbolic, but that's a weakness. <laughs> you weren't of mine. happy about it, obviously. Um, and so the guys come, and we had curfews, and we had um, it was called in, in loco parentis where the college was meant to be your parents, and so we had curfews, and we had parietals. There were certain 
certain hours on Sunday, like from three to five, where a guy could come into your room. And the guys came in, they had no curfew, they had nothing. And so we demonstrated against that. And, um, and the college president, who was awful, said, well, girls have curfews because guys can't go out, get knocked up, and get pregnant. Oh, fuck you. It, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's Excuse a direct, me. But... Direct quotation. So that puts a fire in your belly. And um, the other thing about the college I went to, though, is that this guy aside, um, because it was historically a women's college, the male professors, at least the ones I worked with, were really encouraging of young women to like get a good education and to mm -hmm. advance. And I had wonderful teachers and mentors. And so I off I went to graduate school. Ugh, little did I know. And so I get to graduate school. Uh, and the department I was initially in, I discovered later, had never graduated a female PhD. <laughs> and I'd go into these guys' offices, and they'd ask, you know, to meet about something. They'd ask me what I was cooking for dinner. And they would say, you know, what's a pretty young thing like you doing in graduate school? I don't know, sir. What are you <laughs> cooking for dinner? <laughs> and, wow. um, you know, and I had a, a friend uh, of mine in graduate school who was actually quite beautiful. And she would get those comments on her paper, uh, on her papers that she turned in. So that plus... I, I got to Brown and oh, it was Brown. It was Brown, mm -hmm. and so I transferred out of American, out of history, and into American studies. And there was a woman teaching there named Mary Jo Buell. Uh, Mary Jo Buell um, was a very eminent feminist historian, and she she later she won a, uh, a MacArthur Ge mm. Genius Award. Wow! And so in my first year at Brown, I was able to take a women's history course with her. You you, you know wow. for for wow. for a young woman like you. Um, who probably took, you know, gender studies, like, for granted, right? Um, yeah. It was mind-blowing. I've never was, had the privilege of, t I mean, I'm, I'm jealous that you had oh, that chance. I'm a little bit older than you and, and never had that chance. She was wow. fabulous. So she was a huge influence. Uh, just learning all that history, you know, the long fight to get the vote and... Um, the herstory. Yeah, it was. So those are some of the mm -hmm. formative things. And of course, you know, having older white men t not take you seriously. And I was going to, I was like, all right, you know. Uh, yeah, you are going to take me seriously, <laughs> you know. So um, those were really, you know, some f formative things. Grad school really did it. Um, and the other thing um, is that I met some awful men there, but I met wonderful men there, too. Uh -huh. Men who took— Were truly allies. My dissertation advisor— he was such an intellectual, like he didn't care what color your skin was, you know, girl, boy, whatever. He just wanted to talk about ideas and he was very supportive of mm -hmm. women. And I had a couple of other people like that too, mm -hmm. because, you know, we think about who are our role models back then. We didn't right. have any. No. They were men for the most part. Well, the ones who opened doors because there were no women who were in positions to open doors back then. That's right. Us. Yeah. I mean, right. your role models came from the media. It was Gloria Steinem. It was um, back in the day before she went crazy. It was Jermaine Greer. Um, <laughs> Florence Kennedy. Do you remember Flo sure. Kennedy? Of oh, course. I loved Working her. Gloria. Yeah. Um, so we got a lot of our role models from the media. Billie Jean King, Be Still My Heart. Oh, my Heart, gosh, right? of course, of course. But let's talk about 
the media right now because we don't have a lot of time, but there's some powerful things going on right now. Oh, yeah. And take it away, Monica. Well, I mean, so one of the big things that's happening is a lot of the female characters in comic books and comic book movies in these powerful roles. Um, Anne mentioned uh, Game of Thrones. I went and saw Endgame. I'm not allowed to talk about it. (laughs) But like, so what do you think? Yeah. Well, um, a couple of things. So um, the glass is half empty and the glass is half full. Yes, I agree. You know, there are still um, so few female directors uh, being able to direct movies. Um, There's a lot of pressure for Mm -hmm. that to change. I mean, when Wonder Woman became a smash hit and people were like, Nobody's going to see a, a, a movie directed by a woman, and nobody's going to see a female superhero. It's like, oh, yeah, they are. And, and you the, know? The Captain Marvel. Thing, the damn thing was still written by a man. Yeah. You know, I was actually, I felt a little pandered to with Wonder Woman, but then Captain Marvel came out and blew my mind. Yeah. But tell about what happened in the movie theater when you... Oh. Just so saw. I, I went and saw Endgame, and there was uh, several female character, uh, superhero characters in this movie, and I was sitting next to a wonderful example of a terrible man um, who was scoffing every time a female character was on screen. And I was like, oh my gosh, we're sitting here through two hours and 50 minutes of male-centric scenes, and you can't give me 10 freaking minutes? You know, I, it's funny you mention this because uh, I, I have a very, very close friend. He's 29 um, who just went to see it. <laughs> and he um, I, I just got his text before I walked in. He was so outraged that the uh, male superheroes got applause in, in Endgame and the women didn't. And this wow. is, is so he was outraged. Wow. And then, uh-huh. yeah. And he said some of the women maybe kind of be uh, actresses in the movie are getting Gamergate kind of treatment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's half empty, it's half full. Um, you know, those of us who love strong women take heart in this. We are seeing more female superheroes. That's good. Uh, get used to it, you know, guys. Demand, um, yeah, and but, women ask, demand more. Mm-hmm. And we're also seeing... Um, you know, more men and women partnered with each other on like detective shows and yep. cop shows. And uh, so uh, there's that. And we are beginning to see, um, you know, Amy Poehler's coming out with the movie Wine Country it, uh, next month in May, in which a bunch of friends go off and celebrate one of the women's 50th birthday. So, you know, one thing before we let you go is. Um, Obviously, we've got a big election coming up, a presidential election, and here we are. You know, I understand there are 20 announced candidates on on the Democratic Party right now. Um, But, you know, here we have, I mean, some of the most qualified, the most qualified in my mind are the four United States senators, women, who are running. And yet you have these men, some of whom are pretty doggone old, some of whom are pretty doggone unexperienced, and they're getting much more of the media attention. Isn't this what we're talking about, the uh, visibility problem? Well, funny you mentioned this. I wanted to talk about this briefly. Um, Who writes the election coverage? It's men. Mm -hmm. 61% of print bylines are male uh, on election coverage. 74% of online media election coverage is male. So there's a male filter already. Um, and which is nothing new. Which is nothing new. Same thing on television as well, TV, radio. 
And, you know, Jane Fonda, Robin Morgan um, have a, uh, a women's media center where they, they monitor this kind of stuff, and they keep coming out every year with how underrepresented women are as reporters and writers and anchors. Um, so there is a built-in male bias, mm-hmm. and women often get less favorable coverage as well. So mm-hmm. it's less coverage, and it's less favorable coverage. So... Yeah, and so we're going to have to start raising hell with newspapers and online sites about equal coverage for women. Mm-hmm. Well, and one of the best things that women can do for women as women is seek out those female candidates because they aren't getting the front page because it's their birthright, you know. Um, so another thing that we wanted to ask you before we say goodbye today, uh, you've written um, a lot that girls and women in our culture are taught to be pulled between wanting power and dreading power. This is a question that I'm particularly interested in because I have experienced both wanting power and then dreading it once it was looming. How can younger women recognize this and start to change it? I think they really have to see this as not their own lonely battle, but as a, a cultural and, and socially instituted conundrum. And when we see how older women with power, whether it's Nancy Pelosi, Maxine Waters, Hillary Clinton, are um, attacked or vilified, um, we have to stand up for them. But I think we, I, I, it, this involves as much internal change as it does external change. Um, You know, with these kinds of stereotypes about women uh, who want power, being aggressive, not really women, uh, ball busters, etc., that is designed to chip away at uh, every woman's confidence. And we've got to take our confidence and own it. And so I think this is an internal and an external battle. And sometimes it is tough to take on power, but power can also be fun. Uh, and you can really, if you have power, you can change things. And it's really gratifying. And young women need to know that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I love the fact that you talk about collective power, you know, because in my working lifetime, I mean, we have seen tremendous progress with what individual women have accomplished. But I personally feel as if we are in kindergarten when it comes to leveraging our collective power and supporting one another. You in agreement with that? Yes, and I think um, we really have to get back to the 1970s because that was collective power. Women did not change things by themselves. They were in the streets. They were demonstrating everywhere. They were filing class action suits together. They were going to court together. And really what's happened since the 1980s is a rise of market fundamentalism, which which uh, celebrates individualism and says we're all on our own. You know, there's no reason the government should be involved and, and support us in any way. Uh, let the market do it. Well, the market is failing, totally failing. It's failing everybody except the 1%. So we have to overthrow that ideology of market fundamentalism and rampant individualism and get back to solidarity and collectivism as women across ages and colors. Wow, we could go on and on. Is there anything you didn't get a chance to say that you'd like to leave people with? I mean, I guess it's raise your voices and get get out there, right? Don't Absolutely. Be and and let's uh, let's overthrow this media myth that older women and younger women are at odds with each other and can't get along. It's not true. I don't see it between me and my students, and we need each other more than ever. I agree. Right on. 
Well, thank you so much, uh, Professor Susan Douglas, author, professor at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, and also author of a book I can't wait to read, which is coming out, I guess, next uh, around International Women's Day next year. Yes. Do you have to wait that long? I do have to wait that long, sadly, but... Um That's the publishing industry. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the book is called In Our Prime, How Older Women Are Reinventing the Road Ahead. So have a good week, everybody. I'm Ann Doyle. And I'm Monica Doyle. And let's all go. Power Power up. up. So thanks for joining us at Powering Up, everybody. We hope you'll subscribe and share us with your network. Monica and I can be reached through my website, and Doyle Leadership. And remember, power is the currency for getting things done. Claim yours and put it to work.